0: Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing.
1: I hate the people who talk about it all the time, so I didn't want to be one of those people.
0: From two guys who study the markets as a passion. Can I count on you to talk me off the ledge, partner?
1: Yes, and that's what this podcast is for.
0: And trade for all the right reasons. That's my due diligence. I'm in. Dude, if you're in, I'm in.
1: A line of thinking is the higher the volatility on an asset, the higher the volatility on the opinions. So I feel like you have crazies on both sides.
0: Here's your host of Animal Spirits, Michael Batnick. I can say that I was never driven by money.
1: So you were trading three times leveraged leverage ETFs for the love of the game.
0: Exactly, man. <laughs> I, I'm a purist. But anyway. <laughs> and Ben Carlson.
1: This is true. I do not drink coffee. I've never been on Facebook. I've never done fantasy football.
0: Oh, one last thing. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Now, today's show. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. We are recording this on Monday Dow, 24,573 o'clock. It has been a wild two-week period for stocks, Ben. So let's just get right into it.
1: We finally hit correction territory last week towards the end of the week. Is that correct? On Friday or Thursday?
0: I think we got there on Thursday.
1: So the definition of a correction, I guess, as people are saying is 10%, and we've now gone in there. And to your point where you you wrote about this week, it was likely one of the fastest corrections we've ever seen from all-time highs.
0: Yeah. Let me ask you a very personal question. Hit me. When you're calculating or thinking about a correction or a bear market or any arbitrary number, do you use the intraday high or do you use closing prices?
1: I don't think I'm traderish enough to use intraday prices. And I don't know if I have access to those. So I use closing prices.
0: I could go either or, but I think the correct peak to trough is intraday.
1: I only use intraday signals for my 401k.
0: (laughs) Not bad. Not bad. All right. So the S&P 500 and other stocks topped at January 26th they made an all-time high, and then just nine days later, they fell 10% and I'm using closing prices. That has never, ever happened where stocks made an all-time high. I'm sorry, I used the Dow for the study, where the Dow made an all-time high and then nine days later was 10% below where it closed. Something similar happened in 1928 where stocks made an all-time high and then closed 9% lower nine days later. So not entirely unprecedented, But I think that's one of the things that maybe made more commotion than it deserved. Like a 10% correction is very, very normal. I think the speed at which it happened, and there's a a bunch of things that we're gonna get to, but the speed I think is the primary reason why people were so, so excited.
1: This is why it's both so interesting and maddening to use historical data to inform yourself as an investor, because I think it makes sense to look back and figure out how things generally happen and how things usually happen most of the time. But if you were to use the historical playbook, for figuring out this correction you would have been completely wrong because these things usually don't happen and it's just why investing can be so humbling because these things that never happen seem to happen <laughs> quite frequently it's crazy
0: so tops are a process bottoms are an event which is why you typically see a sort of rounding top where it's a bunch of false rallies and the bounces become less and less severe i don't know if severe is the right word maybe the opposite of severe but at the bottom, you see sort of a puke, a V bottom. And this time we saw a V top. And another reason why this felt so traumatic was because if you were a diversified, if you held a diversified portfolio, there was really nothing to shelter you from losses other than cash. So using closing prices from January 26th to February 9th, S&P was down 8.75%. Long bonds, which typically provide sort of crisis alpha, was down four point seven three seven percent Gold was down 2.6%. The bond index was that down... That one hurt you, didn't
1: it? GLD? Too soon. Was that? Okay.
0: The bond index was down 1.26%. And managed futures got crushed. I see losses between 8 and 13% because this happened so fast. CTAs got crushed again because the speed has declined. There was really nowhere to hide.
1: This is definitely one of those situations where they see the correlations all go to one and everything kind of pukes and falls at the same time, which for some people, like you said, speaking out against diversification, it might seem like, well, there's nowhere to hide. You should have just been in cash. But obviously, long-term investors don't think diversification to work over nine or 10 days it's definitely more of a long-term thing, but it just shows you that there's always going to be periods where something completely out of whack happens and you're not going to be able to completely you know, figure it out and totally shelter yourself and hedge every risk. And the fact that we had interest rates rising a little bit, which, which ding bonds, obviously.
0: Yeah. One thing that did work quite well was a product that we had mentioned a few weeks ago. The symbol is T-A-I-L. Meb Faber's tail risk was up four point six six percent. I don't own it, Ben. Do you own that?
1: No, but I think we should deserve a pat on the back for mentioning that two weeks ago. We completely nailed the timing on that, right? Yeah. Oh, not. But yeah, yeah that, that, that's and you hope that your sort of crisis alpha tail risk thing works in a in an in an environment like this when volatility spikes big time and and everything else sells off. If it doesn't work then, then you know when will it? But that's uh, pretty interesting.
0: Did you did you do anything personally in your account? Over the past two weeks,
1: uh, I made a slight extra purchase in my brokerage account that I n- normally wouldn't have. Used some using some cash uh, one of the days. I was kind of hoping for one of the days we'd get a bigger flash crash and, and see something big, and that would have put some more money to work. But other than that, I just dutifully continue to buy periodically. You know, every two weeks through my paycheck and monthly in in other accounts. So not many huge changes. How about you?
0: I didn't. No, I didn't do anything. What did you buy last week?
1: I just, I just put money into an ETF that, that I have it. so Name names! Oh, I, I put money into the... I, I've been using lately the Elf Architect VMOT, Trend Following Value Momentum. That's kind of the one I use in my outside brokerage account. So I put some money in there, and just because stocks puked a little bit one of those days, and I'm pretty sure I nailed the bottom exactly to the minute. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe not. But I mean, well d- it's... Well done. Yeah, it's, it's tough in these times because you know, as you said, you never know when they're going to stop. And it's possible this thing's, you know, stocks are railing now. I wouldn't be surprised either way if, if stocks come back and we get a V bottom to really piss everyone off. Or if we just kind of trudge a little sideways for a while and we have another leg lower. I, I really don't know what's going to happen. The thing is, I, I did a lot of work this past week. I'm writing a piece for Bloomberg on some of the historical corrections that happen outside of the, the normal ones people look to. And most of the time, there really isn't a reason. The, the best reason is usually stocks went up a lot, and so now they need to take a breather and go back down. And that's usually the best reason there is. So there was, I found three different bear markets, one in the 40s and two in the 60s, that basically had zero reason for happening. One of them was 1946 when stocks fell almost 27%, and that was right after World War II, which surprisingly, stocks rallied during World War II, and it was, this was almost like a fall after that rally.
0: Oh, what they call that a um, uh, a peace scare, I think.
1: Oh, yeah, that could, yeah, it could, and they were, yeah, they were worried that productivity was going to go down and there wasn't going to be as much growth because the the war stopped. Um, the other one was in 1962, which was another close to 27% correction, and they actually had a flash crash then too, which stopped. Stocks- well,
0: wasn't wasn't that
1: the Cuban Missile Crisis? It, well that that actually was the end of the of the fall the cuban missile crisis marked the end of like the bear market and so they they tried to blame this one on kennedy I, I actually found this piece from from the federal reserve from like 1967 going through all these old bear markets and trying to give reasons to them and even at the time they couldn't figure it out and so in 1962 like may 29th the dow fell 5.7% so it had a flash crash kind of before that was even in the lexicon which is interesting because now you hear all the reasons and he, you can correct me if I miss some, but the reasons people said stocks fell this time were because machines, algos, ETFs, ETNs, VIX products, risk parity. Did I miss anything?
0: Uh, yeah, Super Bowl rates. indicator.
1: Yeah, interest. Yeah, interest rates, wages, inflation. But people always want to put a a good narrative to these things. But when something happens this fast, there's no way that you can just put a reason on it and and make it nice and clean like that.
0: Yeah, I generally agree with you, but I actually think that there was. Like I think that the reason why stocks initially fell, I do believe that it was because interest rates were were rising and and the wage number that came in on Friday. Now, why did they fall so fast? I think that's just people being people, and there were some crazy numbers about how fast money came out of the market. And again, I think one of the biggest reasons is because the speed at which this happened. So Bloomberg had a few good statistics on this, that RSI, which is basically a momentum indicator, and we'll uh, link in the show notes about how exactly that's calculated. I don't don't think that's quite important. Uh, had its biggest decline of all time. So RSI was overbought for a long time, and it just absolutely cratered. And so with that.
1: And this is going back to like the 1920s, they looked at this.
0: Yeah. So with that. The S and P 500 spider ETF SPY suffered a record 23.6 billion dollar outflow last week, which is around eight percent of the total fund's assets. That's a uh, lot of money.
1: That's impossible. These are passive investors in that fund. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's possible. Uh, zing. Is a, yeah, which yeah, which is another reason to to look at the when people talk about the growth of indexing and in ETFs and say that it's passive investors. That's that's so stupid because there are so many traders and. Johnny come lately and in these things. It's just it doesn't make any sense.
0: Yeah, Beast had another one that we'll link to where they use a fifty day moving average and they're looking at overbought and oversold conditions based on standard deviations above how far and below they are. And this thing went from extremely overbought to extremely oversold in just a few days. So it was Certainly, a 10% decline is, is very, very, very normal. I think the speed, which I keep saying, just threw people off.
1: Yeah, it's the, the chart is pretty crazy. I mean, just slowly, slowly up and then whoosh down. And it, it is kind of the, what the escalator up, and the elevator down. Is that what they say?
0: Yeah. In, in 1987, when the Dow fell 22.6%, and side note, on Tuesday, October 20th, the Dow fell below Monday's low imagine what twitter would have been like
1: <laughs> during 1987
0: <laughs> yeah on the on the Ugh. tuesday after the down 22% day yeah stocks were down uh, quite significantly lower than monday's low
1: well, at the time, people were predicting a great depression from that. Like they thought yes. they were heading for a depression because of the stock market.
0: So anyway, the New York Times wrote something. Obviously, every publication wrote many things, and one of the things that they said was, "quote Democratic leaders in Congress blamed the administration's policies and urged the president to accept a deficit reduction package that would include tax increases." End quote.
1: Well, wasn't Greenspan the one who came to the rescue and lowered rates? And, and we talk about this yes. too. It's Anytime you do these historical analogies, it's never perfect because we talk about this weekend. In 1987, interest rates on the 10-year went to 10% leading up to the that crash. Can you imagine how happy people would be with 10% interest? I mean, you talked about people are spooked by interest rates. Imagine going back to the 80s or 90s and telling someone that the market is spooked because rates rates rose a little below 3%. It sounds yeah. so... ass Like they would have... Thought you were crazy for saying rates are that low, and obviously that's just—it's all a relative world. Yeah,
0: that is a very good point. So, do you believe that stock sold off on Friday because of inflation fears and rates rising, or do you think that's just complete bullshit?
1: I think investors a lot of times look for a reason to sell. They've had a ton of gains, and sometimes people need an excuse to panic. And and I'm—it's mean, so stupid, but take profits, right? I think sometimes investors just want to do that, and then it just kind of snowballs and cascades, and people find reasons and. I I just think that f- trying to figure out one reason for all of this. I mean, do you really think all the investors out there hitting the sell button are looking at the wage data, going, "Oh, geez, wages are rising. I know what that means. X Y Z will happen." Like I don't. I just don't buy the fact that people actually look at that. I feel like there's a few thousand of us in the financial industry that look at that stuff and and try to make sense of it. But I don't think that investors who are piling out of SPY are looking at wage and inflation data.
0: All right. So if it's not the humans making these decisions, are you blaming the machines? (laughs) no, No,
1: I'm saying it is the humans. That's why it happens, because of the human element. But I'm saying these humans aren't rational you know totally informed agents that are making these decisions because they they've they've put it in their discounted cash flow model and interest rates have risen so that means the future value of expected payouts is going to whatever so i think it is humans and, and obviously the machines maybe could make things a little more hairy in the meantime but it's humans that are putting the inputs into these machines too so it's one way or another the humans are it's a human element that makes these things happen
0: in the, after the 1973 74 bear market there was a, a 50% decline or close to it investors pulled money out of equity mutual funds for 21 straight quarters from 1975, I think, until 1981. So to your point, we're, we're fully capable of sending stocks lower ourselves without blaming the machines.
1: Yes. And, and that was before index funds and all this other stuff. And so let's say, for, say, let's say we don't get the V bottom this time, and we get into tec- technical def- definition of a bear market and we fall 20%. How bad do people freak out here?
0: Well, considering that eight percent of SPY was ripped out of the fund in, in nine days, I, I don't, I don't know. Maybe people are going to be people.
1: Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's always it's always impossible to to guess. I suppose
0: you and I are again not that not that what we sort of say half seriously affects how we allocate our own money, but I think that we were pretty optimistic about this correction and the future of the market. Like we were saying, we wouldn't be surprised if we see new all time highs this year. And again, we we take what we say with a huge grain of salt. But like this seems to be the best thing that could have happened is that people are reminded, oh shit, this is what risk looks like. Yeah. Maybe I maybe I had too much money in stocks. Maybe I should you know reassess my true risk tolerance. But the fact that this correction came in the context of a massive bull market with very good economic data, and of course we both know that the market will turn probably before the economic data you know shows itself. But there's no recessionary signals anywhere. Like this is great. I would if we have a twenty percent decline in the context of a bull market to sort of reset and and keep people in check. That's a beautiful thing.
1: I, I took a look for Bloomberg last week at all the bear markets and corrections going back to 1950. So anything that was a double digit. You know, or 10, 10% or worse. And there's been 34 corrections or bear markets in that time. 22 of them took place outside of a recession. So, yeah, sometimes a recession is probably a good indicator that stocks are going to sell off pretty hard, but it doesn't always have to be that way. And sometimes these things just happen. And if stocks went up forever, then guess what? You're not going to get a premium on them because there would be too much money flowing into them and then they would have to crash. So, it's kind of a circular reasoning where stocks just can't go up forever on a straight line it's got to be volatile and that's that's where the risk premium comes from
0: so what do you what what do you think about the the fact that so many young investors have never seen a bear market do you think that makes them any more susceptible to bad behavior or do you think that's like just a story
1: i honestly think people who are going to panic are going to panic either way so they had a they had a graph in bloomberg this week and they said that more than half of all fund managers have 9 years of experience or less And I think that we've talked about this before, but there's a huge difference between experience and expertise. Because how many older people, older investors do you know that have been scarred by their previous experience in the market, whether it was inflation in the 70s or a huge bull market in the 80s and 90s or high interest rates or low interest rates or whatever it is that has shaped their views and they can never get away from that viewpoint? So I think people who are going to panic will panic regardless of their experience in the markets. And sometimes experience is a good teacher, but. A lot of times it can also be a really terrible teacher, so I don't, I don't really put much stock into that.
0: Yeah. The New York Times had an article about about millennials, and they said, Mario, 27, ducked into a restroom to check his cryptocurrency and stock holdings on Monday and felt a punch to the gut. Then a growing rush of anxiety and nausea. His $33,000 stock portfolio had plummeted by more than 40% to $19,000 in value before swelling back to $24,000 on Wednesday. He said, quote, I'm aware of the risks, but I never expected this rapid and severe drop. It looks like the down payment for an apartment I've been buying will have to wait. He now, obviously, obviously did not
1: pay attention to Animal Spirits last week where we talked about do not have your down payment sitting in stocks.
0: Yep, he, he learned his lesson the hard way. <laughs> but I, I, I think that people need to experience the pain for themselves because yeah. you know, it's one thing to, even if you're a market you know, fan of market history, it's one thing to read, it's a much, another thing to, a much different thing to experience it. But I also don't think that experience necessarily prepares you for the next event.
1: No, because again, they don't always look the same. And I've gotten a few text messages from like old college and high school friends in the past few weeks who I never hear from about the markets. And now they're all saying, what is going on? What is happening? And it is just funny how that changes. And and trying to like coach them off the ledge and say, like, and this guy, you know, he said he's got $33,000 in his stock portfolio, but he's only 27. And so it's like, We've talked about this before, but you know, lose that money now before you have a much larger balance and take this pain now. And you have so many years and decades ahead of you to save and invest. This is, this is a good thing for young investors. They should pray for a bear market.
0: Friday morning, I got an email, a screenshot text from a friend of mine saying that he can't log on to his 401k. <laughs> and we never, ever, ever talk about the market. And that should have been a that should have been a good for a bottom end. So we actually,
1: we actually got a reader or a listener question about this. And he said, hey, a bunch of the major online brokerage houses went down last week. And I think it was Fidelity. And I know a couple of the robo-advisors had a hard time, Betterment and Wealthfront. And they kind of said, what are your thoughts on this? Like, how does this change client behavior? So what do you think, if anything, that means?
0: Yeah. So yeah, actually, I did do something last week. I bought some stocks for my sister. She had a little bit of extra cash. And TD Ameritrade, I couldn't get on.
1: Yeah, the thing is, I'm sure most of the people logging on are probably checking their balances or probably hitting the sell button. But it it is kind of stink for those people who actually wanted to do something good and buy in in sort of a quick panic. But you know, there was a story in Bloomberg last week about Robinhood and Wealthfront saying it, it's just the other thing. The only it always comes back to: are we worried about these places not being there to hold their customers' hands when things go wrong? And then they log on, and they can't get onto the website. So what does that what does that do to their psyche? Does that cause them to want to panic
0: more? Are they less? Do they lose trust in their institution? If you if you want to control your own destiny, get an E Trade account, right? Like I don't think you go to Betterment or Wealthfront because you want to make allocations decisions. You go there because you don't want to deal with this.
1: I actually, yeah, I actually think it's a good thing if people can't log on to their account when this stuff is happening again, unless you're trying to buy or something. Because you, you look, watching your account value go down on days like that, is is usually unhealthy behavior. It's not going to
0: help you. What percent of people logging on are trying to buy?
1: That's a good question. I'm guessing it's a small percentage. But yeah, it would be nice for those people who want to. But most people are either looking at their value or probably selling.
0: No, it's interesting for my own behavior. So I told you that I check my account every day, which which I have stopped doing. Did you in the last 10 days? No, I haven't.
1: Okay. And why do you think that is?
0: Because I'm not selling, so okay. I don't need to see that negative reinforcement.
1: Okay, so you're you're actually trying to take steps to correct that behavior, and not look as much yeah. anymore.
0: Uh, I lied down this morning.
1: Okay, you had to look.
0: Yeah. I, see what the yeah. damage was.
1: Yeah, I mean, most of the time, I think you, from as closely as we follow this stuff, I think you can get a good idea about you know how far things have fallen. But it's kind of the same way if you're as things are going up, if you're not paying attention, you get a pleasant surprise by you know how far things have grown so i guess it works both ways
0: i think i think one of the biggest stories though and and we we mentioned this earlier but let's just dive in a little bit deeper one of the biggest stories was the supposedly non-correlated asset classes or securities or strategies that you would invest in so it's conceivable and there's no way of knowing that interest rate rising and bond prices lowering sparked the sell off but what do you make of managed futures and CMTs getting their bells rung?
1: Well, that's a tough. I've written about this this strategy a lot over the years because that was this. This was this huge. This is probably the best performing asset class, you know, overall or strategy in two thousand eight. It was up on average like ten to fifteen percent, while the stocks were down forty, depending on where you look in the globe. You know, 35 to forty, whatever. And so, tons of money rushed into these things following the crisis because. We're going to have a double-dip recession and things are going to happen again. And these things provided quote-unquote crisis alpha. And now in the past, since then, 2009 to 2017, you know, I think managed futures on average as a whole had like a 10% total return. So they, would, they did nothing for almost a decade. The hope was next time that things go wrong, these things will again show that prove their wear the problem is these things follow trends and the trends that they've been following have been stocks and when stocks fall this quickly they don't have enough time to reverse course so you shared some stats with me you, you looked at the top what five or six biggest managed futures funds and they're all down what 8
0: to 10% yeah i think the worst one that i saw was 13% so i i don't necessarily think this is like we're not blaming the managed futures it's just the nature of the strategy this this move happens so fast i think from a behavioral Point of view, it's it's just this is this is tough for people that have been allocated to those funds, hoping for some crisis alpha, and this happened so fast that they didn't have time to respond. Now, if we do see a actual trend change, and however you measure it, it doesn't really matter. But if we do see a sustained bear market that lasts over eighteen to twenty four months instead of like intraday, I would tend to think that these funds are going to do pretty pretty well.
1: Yeah, in a longer term bear market, that would be the hope, and I think. It's easy to focus on the short term when these types of boosts happen. You, you kind of have to. But, I mean, you can't judge a strategy over 10 days unless it completely blows up. And so I think with any of this stuff, whether they're talking about bonds or gold or tail risk strategies or managed futures, I think you have to give it a little more time in, you know for things to play out and you don't judge your investment performance on 10-day period or something. Yep. So managed futures are technically a hedge fund strategy, if you will, and a lot of the, the bigger ones, you know, charge a premium for their fees and a lot of them that there are now some ETFs and mutual funds in the space, which is kind of nice, but the majority of the bigger ones still charge two and twenty in the hedge fund structure. And so there was a an article in Bloomberg last week, really good one that basically said what are what do the big hedge fund fees pay for? So they tried to break out and it's kind of tough because a lot of these places don't exactly open their books for everyone to see. But but they tried to break out how how much of what investors are paying in hedge fund fees and that 2% management fee you know, go to actual operations of running the business and making investment decisions versus marketing. And there was actually a lawsuit by some clients against JP Morgan. And the lawyer basically said, you know, to quote him, contrary to what the clients generally believe, half the fees they're paying are not going to investment geniuses, but marketing. So they found for a lot of these funds they looked at, Basically, half of the fees that are going to hedge funds are paid for paying for shelf space at different places to get investors and marketing fees and sales, which just sort of boggle i I guess it makes sense intuitively that that's how these things work, but it sort of boggled my mind that they were saying it was half the fees go to that stuff wow so i I just don't know how the large pensions endowments foundations can continue to put so much money into this space without having a revolt for when they see statistics like this.
0: I think that it's just it's it's been such a long bull market that I think that they would just feel such a huge sense of regret if they were to do anything about it now like change their allocation.
1: Yeah it is hard for them and yeah and they're, they're I mean they talk about the returns obviously which has been covered extensively you know elsewhere where hedge funds have done terribly
0: what do you think they can do i mean could they literally demand that a fund lowers its fees because the best performers will just say no like go yeah.
1: somewhere else right what's surprising to me is that there's so many other also rands that are able i mean there's 10 or eleven thousand hedge funds these days it's just it's amazing to me that there are that many that still exist that are able to in the reason <laughs> i guess that one of the reasons they still do exist is because they pay so much for their marketing and sales and they are able to get in front of people and, and i've said this before when I would get in hedge funds meetings in the past, it was impossible to not be completely wowed by these people. They did have the best sales and marketing people of any, you know, hedge funds and private equity probably were very similar. Like their presentation materials are amazing. Uh, other people are sort of charismatic and speak well and they have a good narrative. And it's really hard to turn that down. When you get in that room with them and sit face to face because they are so persuasive.
0: How long did it take you when you were back at your office for the. Fantasy to, or or the the awe to like sort of wear off, and you were like, "Whoa!" I just I was just like under their spell for a minute.
1: Towards the end of it, I was going into it thinking, "I'm not going to be wowed by these people," and it's it's really hard, especially when you get in front of like the portfolio managers, the people who have started these businesses a lot of times, and the, they're really you know the, the the making the big decisions. It's they really are <laughs> good at what they do. They're they're highly educated. Everything that they make you sound like they have the the most unique investment strategy in the world, even though there's probably 85 other funds doing the exact same thing. It, it, and it's hard not to get into that spell, which is, you know, another thing about this this idea of why storytelling is, is so important and sales is so important in this business because that's w- what it comes down to a lot of times. So, but yeah, the, the numbers really sort of surprised me. It was, it was pretty interesting. So. I guess that's enough on the markets getting in recommendations this week.
0: Yeah, this is sort of funny. So I'm reading this on my Kindle. I'm reading Deep Work by Cal Newport and there's a lot of really good stuff in there how how easily distracted we are and how important it is to really dedicate time and, you know, undivided time into what we're doing. And the uh, the irony of that is that uh, I'm like reading this book on my phone. And, <laughs> and checking check, Twitter, checking Twitter and check, yeah, yeah, checking Twitter every ten minutes. I don't know that I can be a deep worker because I am just so easily distracted. And I, it works for me. I could. I, there's a ton of room for improvement, but I'm not sure if, if some of us are just you know, wired differently for different types of work.
1: When you were writing your book, did you ever do anything where you shut everything off and just wrote or were you constantly multitasking and doing other stuff when you were writing?
0: Yes and no. I would go to coffee shops a lot or come into the office to write on weekends, but I usually had like some sort of distraction. I'm I'm really not good at turning everything off and just burying my head in a book.
1: Yeah, I read this book too. I'm not one of these people that could just go into a cabin for a week and put my head down and and write for 12 hours a day or do whatever you need to do. That's... That's not me. I, I find... I'm, I'm sure it probably doesn't help with efficiency, but I'm more of a multitasker too.
0: And uh, I watched two movies on Netflix. One was Cloverfield Paradox. And I saw people giving it bad reviews. But for some reason, I needed to see just how bad it was. And I can confirm that it was putrid.
1: That's too bad because I loved the first one. Okay. It so was, it was just it was, terrible, huh? Yeah, it was I've really heard bad, bad things. Yeah. I'm glad and, and you I fell have, on the sword I, for that one.
0: I have like a high tolerance for bad movies. Like, I loved Alien vs. Predator. As long as there's, like, a a few cool action scenes, like, I'm good. This gave me nothing.
1: Okay. All right, good. Well, uh, I'm glad I don't have to watch it now.
0: And I watched with my wife, we watched The Ritual, which is a horror movie on Netflix. Okay. And it was, like, it was definitely not worth watching, but it's kind of funny. My wife goes onto Google and reads the entire story before... So she won't be scared? So she won't get scared. okay. And... We we both scare very easily, so we're like we're watching with like our <laughs> <laughs> hands above our eyes. It was okay. It wasn't great. It wasn't terrible.
1: Okay, I I saw one of the more entertaining movies I've seen in a while this weekend. We watched American Made with Tom Cruise. Have you seen this one? Mm-mm. So it's actually based loosely on a true story. I'm sure they embellish like they do with all movies that are based on a true story. But Tom Cruise, who is in his full TC mode, I I I'm a huge Tom Cruise fan. Hold so. on,
0: TC mode.
1: Yeah, TC Tom Cruise. No? Anyway. The, uh, do not edit that out. <laughs> yeah, of course. I hey, I'm a big Tom Cruise fan. Uh, I don't really practice the Scientology stuff, but in the movies. So this is about a guy in like the 70s and 80s who got caught up in the basically flying back and forth uh, drugs for the drug cartel like Escobar. But he was also part-timing it, working with the CIA and dropping off Guns in Latin America. It's one of these stories where it's it's hard to believe that any of it is true. It was so bonkers, and it was really entertaining. If you're seeing the move, movie Blow with yeah, um, Johnny Depp,
0: great movie.
1: Kind of like that, but I think this was actually better. Surprisingly, what? I, okay, give it a try. I think this was like Blow, but a little better. So it was it was one of the more entertaining ones I've seen in a while. And the whole story was just bonkers to me that it actually happened, even though, again, it was probably embellished a little bit. And I've been, I've been reading the book, Thinking in Bets, Making Smarter Decisions When You Don't Have All the Facts by Annie Duke, who is a former professional poker player. Great book on uh, figuring out how to make better decisions and the way that she frames making decisions and she uses poker as like the, the guidelines behind it in terms of like the idea of making bets and, and not having all the certainty. This is one of the better books I've read in a while.
0: Her podcast with Ted Sides was really good yes uh, sp- speaking of podcasts I don't know if you listened to Barry's interview with Jack Devine he was like the head of the international CIA I don't know that's probably not a department but something like that he was hugely influential in the CIA and it was really really good he was involved in driving the Russians out of Afghanistan and and by taking down Escobar it was really good
1: oh wow in my queue okay yeah since I just watched the CIA movie I will I'll listen to it this week good stuff Okay, so next week, bear market or rally from here?
0: Uh, well, we already are pretty well off the lows. Oh, man.
1: We'll let you know next week. <laughs> yeah, sounds good. <laughs> All right. Thanks, everyone, for listening.